And in just a moment, there's going to be a video to play. It's the trailer to a movie called The Insanity of God. And I just use it as an illustration this morning to get us started as we think about God's call on our lives and what it means to follow Him. It was like getting in a plane in the New Testament and getting off the plane in the Old Testament. It was like I had flown into hell. We saw what, what darkness was. We'd seen darkness in Somalia, and all of a sudden now we saw darkness up front and personal in our family. What do you do when everything seems to be crucifixion and there's no resurrection? We really question whether or not uh, Christianity could work anywhere other than the Western world. God has said, you are free, and you are to share the gospel with everyone. Then do we have the courage to suffer the consequences? Ninety percent born in the church, raised in the church, saved in the church, married and buried in the church, will never share Jesus with another person. I went looking for tools from God. And what I found was the resurrected Christ himself. Have any of you read the book, The Insanity of God? Just a couple. I would encourage you to get that book and check it out. Uh, it's a book about a couple who God called to, to go learn from the persecuted church. And they traveled uh, to different places in the world where the church's persecution is most intense. Um, and, and they saw firsthand what it meant for our brothers and sisters to follow Jesus. Uh, this is a picture. This is, this is just an illustration of, of our calling in Christ. It was uh, an arresting statement you heard him make at the end of, of the trailer there when he said, 90% of Christians in churches who were married in churches, who will be buried in churches, will never share their faith with another person. That's shocking. That, sh- that should get our attention and wake us up this morning. We continue today in our study of the book of Acts. We've been looking at uh, the book of Acts under the heading of Jesus' Gospel Gathering for Gospel Going. Jesus' Gospel Gathering for Gospel Going. We are that gathering. The church is Jesus' Gospel Gathering. He owns us. He bought us with the price of his own blood. And we now gather in his name around the gospel so that as we gather around the gospel, we'll be motivated and moved by the gospel to go with the gospel and for the gospel into the world, to take the gospel to those that need to know it most. 
One uh, commentator writes concerning the book of Acts, the point of the book of Acts, the point of the kingdom of God, the point of the Christian life, is that Jesus is alive and in charge of the world and that he butts in and changes things. He does not take or does not like fatalistic attitudes. He does not like pessimistic, cyclical views of history or personal life or family life, views that say things just go in circles. They really don't ever get anywhere. The yo-yo of fate never comes off its string and sails in some wonderfully unexpected arc through the sky. But it does. The world is not a machine. It's a drama. And there is a live author-director named Jesus who can and does jump on the set anytime he pleases and boggles the minds of the actors who think they knew the script. And today I want to encourage you that this, this morning Jesus is alive and, and he turns things around. I want us to live with, with, a, with a kind of open-ended expectancy in our lives because Jesus lives. And that's what we see all through the book of Acts. You'll remember back in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 and following, a great persecution broke out against Jesus' ecclesia, against his gospel gathering there in Jerusalem, where it had been born on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. That persecution in Acts 8 began uh, right on the heels of the stoning of Stephen, right? And under the leadership of Saul of Tarsus, the church, with the exception of the, the apostles, things got so bad in the city for believers in Jesus, the church, except the apostles, was driven out of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. And then later in chapter 8, we, we see revival breaking out in Samaria. Of all places, Samaria. These Jewish believers scattered from, from, from Jerusalem outward, and they end up in Samaria where their, their most despised, uh, the most despised race of people from the Jewish perspective lived, where, where their enemies were, where, where they'd had conflict for over a thousand years with these Samaritans, and their revival breaks out much like it had on the day of Pentecost. And then God takes Philip, the revival preacher. By the way, didn't we have a, a good week this week, Sunday through Wednesday nights? Had a good time in revival with Brother Michael Lewis and, and others. Thank you for being here. We had a good time, and I, I know all my, my heart was challenged every night, and trust yours was too. Then in the middle of this revival in Samaria, God breaks in and takes Philip, the preacher of the revival, and he sends him on a one-day short-term mission trip to a desert road to convert the treasure of the country of Ethiopia so that all of Africa could, in turn, have the gospel and a strong church could grow and multiply there. So then, while all that's going on, back in Jerusalem, we've learned earlier in Acts chapter 9, Saul is still ravaging the church. And he gets clearance to go to Damascus and persecute and arrest followers of Jesus there, but Jesus is waiting on him. And he stops him, dead in his tracks, by blinding Saul with just a glimpse of his glory, and he takes over Saul's life. Jesus turns the greatest enemy of the church into the church's greatest emissary. 
we're going to look at the beginning of Saul's ministry now as a sold-out follower of Jesus. We're going to be looking today in, in, at, at the middle section of Acts chapter 9. And, and what we're going to see, as has already been, uh, as we'll read in a few minutes, is that Jesus does indeed change the whole climate in which his church found themselves. He changes things from one of intense persecution to a place where, as Acts 9.31 says, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so by the time we get done today, we're going to see the church at a totally different place than it's been in quite a while, at peace walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But you know, we're also going to see this truth. Sometimes Jesus changes things through the suffering of one of his servants. I wonder today, would you be willing to be that servant? Would you be willing to be the servant that God used to live a life of suffering in order that the church might enjoy a time of peace? We know, of course, this time of peace that we'll see in Acts 9.31, it doesn't last. The church, uh, the history of the church all the way up to the early 300s A.D. would be one of on and off persecution, even worse than the church had experienced at this point. It would get worse after the book of Acts. But would you be willing to be that servant that God used? Would you respond to the call of God no matter what the call was? I want to talk to you this morning about the craziness of God's call. Can we just be honest and call it what it is? You know, the title of that book we talked about a while, ago was, a while ago was called The Insanity of God. Nick Ripkin looks at how God works in, 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 in the normal course of things through the persecution of his people, through the suffering of his people, and he calls the whole deal the insanity of God, and yet it's the insanity of God that in the end makes perfect sense and works for the glory of God in our world. So let's talk about the craziness of God's call. Here's the take-home truth for you today. God works through an obedient servant even in the middle of suffering for his glory. God will work through an obedient servant even in the middle of suffering for his glory. You remember what God had told Ananias to tell Saul when he went to heal his blindness after his Damascus Road experience and pray for Saul? In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, uh, Ananias is, is, has just said to the Lord, Lord, you, you do remember, you know who you're talking about. You know this is the guy that came here to persecute us. This, he's, he's known, he's killed a bunch, had a bunch of people killed and imprisoned. I mean, I mean, you really want me to go talk to Saul? And God's answer is, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God says, Ananias, I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly who you're talking about. And here's what you don't know. And here's what he doesn't even know yet. He is my chosen servant. His life's going to be filled with suffering, but the result will be his everlasting joy in Christ and my glory through the preaching of the gospel of Christ through him, even the apostle Paul. Now, I believe Ananias, when he went to see Saul that day, told Saul what God had told him. 
And I believe that Saul knew from the very beginning exactly what the cost would be because of God's call on his life. God works through an obedient servant even in the middle of suffering for his glory. Would you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 9? We're going to pick it up in the second part of verse 19, and we're going to read down through verse 31. Acts chapter 9, beginning in the second part of verse 19. For some days, this is right after he'd been baptized uh, there, there by Ananias. For some days, he was with the apostles at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, so he leaves Damascus, he goes back to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, the apostles. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. And brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You may be seated. I want you to notice this morning, if you will, with me, four aspects of Saul's response to God's call on his life that we all need to imitate. We're looking at the craziness of God's call. We're thinking about the truth that God works through an obedient servant even in the middle of suffering for his glory. And so what we need to understand is the right way to respond to the call of God on our lives when it comes. Four aspects of Saul's response. First of all, we see that Saul responded to God's call immediately. Look at verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Now, it's true that Saul had quite an Old Testament education. He he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He studied under all of the, the best rabbis. But you see, you can understand this. He learned some things about what the Messiah would be, but he had no good teaching about who Jesus was in relation to the Old Testament. And yet, we're told that he didn't feel like he needed to go spend time in Jerusalem with the apostles. He says that over in Galatians. He said, I didn't go up and and, and sit at the feet of Peter and make sure I had everything right. I mean, you remember Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks on the road. I just figure if Jesus could blind him 
and strike him down when he was going to persecute the church, he could somehow do some supernatural instruction so Paul got the gospel right and clear and potent. Amen? And we believe that's what happened. And so immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the Son of God. You know what? When you come to know Christ... Oh, there's a lot we need to learn, amen? We, 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 we need to make disciples, not just converts. There's much to learn, and, and there's much that we need to be taught from the Word of God. But you know what? If you've met Jesus, you can introduce him to somebody else and somebody else to him, amen? And, and, and God's call on our lives, let me just tell you, whatever God's call on your life is specifically, here's the call that's on every follower of Christ, that, that comes to every follower of Christ. That is to make Jesus known, to know him and to make him known. To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself, and to go into all the world and make disciples. To tell people, as Paul did, immediately that he is the Son of God. There are some church members who have used the excuse that they don't feel like they're well-equipped or, or know enough to just sit and never tell anybody about Jesus. They're not ready for that yet. Well, how is it that Paul immediately obeyed the call of God? Understand, the Great Commission has been given. If you've heard it, you've received it. The call's on your life. And if you follow Jesus, if you know him, then immediately... Even now, we should be regularly sharing our faith. One poet, Gloria Pitzer, put it this way, Procrastination is my sin. It brings me naught but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. <laughs> and we're that way with responding to the most basic of God's calls, sharing the gospel with people we know don't know Jesus. Sometimes we have great intentions, but we just don't obey. Can I tell you something that's true for you and me as followers of Jesus? It's also true of your kids. Parents, you can borrow this, and this is a great parenting deal. Are you ready? It's a, it's a simple statement. Are you ready? Delayed obedience is disobedience. That's not original, and I don't know who I stole that one from. But delayed obedience is disobedience. Parents, follow me. When you tell a kid to do something and they look at you and stand there and don't move to do it, that is disobedience. It's not, it's not okay. Like it's not, procrastination doesn't somehow lessen the offense. It is sin. It is disobedience. Kids, are you listening? I'm helping mom and daddy right now and I'm sorry. But you need to understand, delayed obedience is disobedience. Don't tell your mama that you're going to do it later. No, she didn't say do it later, did she? You know what? God didn't say make disciples after about 10 years in Sunday school when you've been uh, to all of our Wednesday night Bible studies and you've, you've been to every witness in class that we offer so you can, you can just make sure you get it exactly right. He said, go make disciples. Follow me and, and make disciples. Parents, you owe me. Because that's valuable. And if you'll take it and be real with it and with your kids, you'll see some changed kids and you'll have a changed home. And if we get real about it, we'll have a changed church. Y'all all right? Saul immediately starts sharing Jesus with all. However, notice here that Paul doesn't immediately embark on one of his missionary journeys, does he? 
There is a period of time between his conversion and when he would be sent out as a missionary to the Gentiles. Some say, and I'm not sure about, the, about, about if it's quite this long, but some say there was as many as 17 years between his conversion and his first missionary journey. You see, God expects immediate response to his call, even if he doesn't immediately lead you into the ultimate place of his call. God had a big picture for Paul. Paul would be the one that would take the gospel to the ends of the earth, literally, to the known ends of the known world at that time. But for a while, he would be the one who would faithfully preach the gospel where he was, as God equipped him and, 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 and helped him along. You see, witnessing is just like breathing for the Christian. It's just like, it's just like when, you, when, when, you, when you are dating someone, right? I mean, do people have to ask you about that person you're dating? <laughs> if they do, you probably should not be dating them because you really don't like them. How do I know that? Even, Preacher, you don't, you don't even know me that well. I don't have to know you that well. Here's the deal. If you like somebody, if you really care about somebody, if you're really in love with somebody, then you tell people about it. Same thing's true with us and Jesus, you see. It's not about all this equipping that has to get, get, get done in our lives before we can tell somebody about Jesus. Just talk. If it's in here, it'll come out. Now, there's a lot you need to learn. Maybe before you go to the mission field, in Paul, as in Paul's case, there are some things, there are equippings that need to take place, but, but not for that. And it's interesting, God takes his time to fully equip us for what he's called us to ultimately be used to do for the kingdom. You know, we shouldn't be surprised to see this kind of delayed preparation. It's so common in Scripture. J.D. Greer says uh, it's standard. God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, then had him tend sheep for his father-in-law for 40 years before he did. <laughs> David was anointed by God to be king of Israel, but then was sent back to the pasture to shovel sheep dung for a little while. Later, when he got his first big break in the palace, he was falsely accused and would spend the next decade running for his life as a fugitive from the, the king he was to replace. God told Joseph he was going to use him to save Israel, and then he sent him off to slavery in prison for two decades. Moses, 40 years old, David, 15 40 years of preparation, David 15, Joseph 20, Paul as many as 17. Are you complaining about how long God is taking with you? J.D. Greer says, don't waste your white space. It's where you learn character. All those examples we gave of those people in the Old Testament... They, did, they weren't just on hold. They weren't just in neutral. They were moving where they were, even though it seemed they were sidetracked. It was part of God's divine and sovereign preparation and school for them to get them ready for what they needed to, where they needed to be in, at the ultimate mission that he had for their lives. But in the meantime, he was using them. He was working through them. I think of Joseph. All the way through, the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph. The, the, the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph's heart was faithful to the Lord. And Joseph was, was serving the Lord and exalting the God of Israel wherever he was, if it was in the pit or if it was in the, the, the dungeon or if it was at Pharaoh's right hand, he was exalting God. Don't waste your white space. It's where you learn character. It's where you learn patience. It's hard, yes. 
Maybe that white space for you is, is joblessness in this moment. Maybe it's singleness. Maybe it's disease or, or struggle or, or financial issues. It's hard, but it's where God teaches you. How many of you saw The Karate Kid? Okay, that's most of you. If you never saw the movie Karate Kid, wow, like, can you even be an American? But anyway, uh, <laughs> you ought to check it out. But how does, how does Mr. Miyagi, remember the little guy? Daniel-san. How, how does Miyagi teach Daniel-san to fight? What does he do? Does he take him to the, to the ring and, 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 and put him in there with an opponent and start him, start him fighting? No, what does he do? Wax on, wax off, right? And Daniel-san's like, what are you talking, what are you doing? Wax on. Wax off. And then it was the paint, right? Paint, up and down, very firm. He put his hand, right? Y'all remember? And Daniel's son's thinking, what is this all about? And then when he was ready, he took him to the ring. And these motions that he learned through these crazy things that seemed to have nothing at all to do with where he wanted to get to all came together and he could fight. See, God's doing the same kind of deal in, in our downtime, white space, desert experience, whatever you want to call it. He's at work. You know, sometimes, though, I think we delay and disobey because we don't feel up to the task God's calling us to. Well, there's good news. You're not. <laughs> Amen? Let's just get that over with. We're not up to the task. We're not able to do what he's called us to do. That's why 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6 is so important. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, which, by the way, the letter means we're doing something of our own strength, but of the Spirit. Whose Spirit? The Spirit of God. For the letter kills. When it's up to me to get it done in my strength, it'll, it'll die every time. But the Spirit gives life. Paul says, here's the deal. We, we, we're, not, we're, not, we're not competent to be ministers of the new covenant. We're not competent to be ambassadors for God. But God makes us competent through His Spirit. He gives us what we need Himself by the indwelling Christ, the indwelling Spirit of the living God. So with that in mind, don't delay when God calls. Obey immediately. Saul not only responded to the call of God immediately, he responded to the call of God intensely. Look at verses 21 and 22. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has, the, has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Paul responded to God's call intensely. When it says he gained strength, that doesn't mean he spent some time in the gym and got bigger muscles. It meant that his, 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 his apologetic ability, his, his defense of the faith ability got stronger. His, his ability is to, to, to point out from Old Testament Scripture who Jesus was to the Jews grew. And isn't it amazing? Saul picks up right where Stephen left off, witnessing to the Jews in the synagogues and arguing from the Old Testament 
scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Saul was single-minded and wholehearted in his focus to proclaim the gospel of Jesus with all intensity. Single-minded and wholehearted. He gave it all he had. And he told people about Jesus. Can I encourage you this morning? Don't try to follow God's call half-heartedly. Don't try to follow God's call half-heartedly. God's call to you was not half-hearted, amen? And he expects no less than wholehearted, intense, fully surrendered obedience to and submission to his call. There's nothing more pathetic and dishonoring to Christ than a believer who's half in and half out. Jesus said, I would that you were either hot or cold, but when you're lukewarm, you make me want to vomit. That's what your Savior says to me. That's what he says to you. Thirdly, Saul's response to God's call, he responded daringly. Look at verses 23 to 25 and also 29 to 30. What we see in these passages is two different times in short order where Paul's life was threatened because he followed the call of God. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. This is still there in Damascus. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Then we find him in verse 29 in Jerusalem. And there he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were, and, and by the way, that would have been some of the same people that Stephen had argued with and tried to convince shortly before he was stoned. Paul goes back to those same people. Having stood there the day they stoned Stephen and been for it, he goes back and he starts speaking and disputing against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. That's okay, Saul. You, you, you want to come back here like Stephen came the first time? We'll just do to you what, you did to, what we did to Stephen. You were all for it in the beginning. We'll give you a dose of your own medicine this time. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus back to his hometown in order to protect him. You see, Saul's intensity and obedience led to opposition, and it'll often do that, amen? The more intense you are in your response to the call of God, your obedience to the call of God, perhaps the more, more intense will, will the opposition and persecution be. But the question is, will we obey anyway? Paul did. Saul did. Saul responded to the call of God even daringly, even though his life was being threatened. I mean, imagine this. You go from the one who's threatening the lives of Christians to the one who is being threatened with death by the people who you just were part of. The hunter becomes the hunted. And yet Saul stayed true to his calling. He was daring in his response to the call of God. Later, he would write to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Again, I just believe he knew what God had told Ananias. I believe he understood. It's just part of it. If I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to make disciples, if I'm going to tell people that Jesus is the Son of God, I'm going to be persecuted. If I'm faithful to the call of God, then I've got to live 
in, in a daring way. I've got to take some risks. Over in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 27, Paul gives kind of a, uh, a list of all the different stuff. It just, and, and this is probably not even all of it, but, but some of the things that he went through, uh, some of the ways he lived daringly and the, the risks he took and even the consequences he suffered because of his faithfulness to talk about Jesus no matter where he went. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. You get the picture? It didn't matter where he went, there was danger. Why? Because he talked about Jesus. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul, before his life was over, would go through all of that and more. But he really believed what he wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 when he told Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You know what? When somebody threatens your life, it's probably natural to be afraid. Would you agree with that? If somebody looked at you and said, I'm going to kill you, you probably are natural and, and human. It, it makes sense that you would be afraid of that action actually happening, right? Well, Saul was, but Saul said, but there's something bigger than that going on. There's something bigger than just my natural knee-jerk human response. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. I want you to see the connection. God's not given us a spirit of fear, so what that needs to do in your life is make you unashamed of the testimony. Well, in other words, Timothy, you've seen it in my life. When you're unashamed of the testimony of Jesus, suffering will come into your life. But here's the deal. God not, didn't give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. And therefore, you should not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, Paul says, and an apostle and a teacher which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Do you hear that boldness of Paul? He got it. I've been called to preach the gospel, and when I do, I'm going to suffer. But here's the deal. I'm not ashamed. Why? Because I know the one that called me. I've met him. I saw him face to face. He's the risen Christ. And if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then he can take care of me even if they kill my body. Jesus said, they can kill your body, they can't kill your soul. And you ought to fear the one that can kill your soul, not the ones that can fear your, kill your body. And so Saul lived that way. 
I'm not ashamed because I know whom I believed. And I'm convinced he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Either till the day Jesus comes back to get me, he'll keep me alive and protect me and get me through stonings and shipwrecks and hunger and imprisonments and beatings. Or he'll, he'll let him kill my body and he'll keep me safe till the day I see Jesus in glory. Either way, he's got me and I'm good. And I'm not going to live ashamed. I'm going to live in boldness without fear in the power of God. Will we dare to obey God no matter the risks? By the way, you take risks all the time for those things that you deem worth the risk. Don't you? Right? If you were to look at your life and break it down, you take risk all the time. Now, I'm not saying you take necessarily a life-threatening risk, but you take risk all the time. Because you reason, and I do the same thing, you, we reason that, that it's worth it. The potential gain is worth it. It's not the call of God on our lives and the glory of Jesus and the cause of getting the gospel to the nations who need Jesus. Is it not worth us taking risks to be obedient? Is it not worth us living daringly? in response to the call of God. What is, what is the call of God on your life? You see, I don't know, but you know. We've, all, we've already said we've all got the common call, the Great Commission, make disciples. Just wherever, whenever, always. But what's the specific call of God on your life? Maybe this week at Revival. Maybe this week at Revival, God's been dealing with you and He's been speaking to you and somehow you got out of here Wednesday night and resisted the Spirit and didn't, didn't answer His call, didn't respond. What is it that he's calling you to do? Today's the day you ought to respond immediately. Today's the day you ought to respond intensely with everything you've got. No more holding back. Give it all. And daringly, be willing to take a risk to do what it is he's called you to do. But fourthly, I want you to see that Saul responded humbly to the call of God. Verse 26, And when he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. It's interesting. Early on, the church in Jerusalem seemed to have no fear, did they? They were bold. That's why they got ran out of Jerusalem. But Saul had been working on them a while. You know, the more we're opposed, the longer we're opposed, it can. Persecution, suffering, difficulty, trials, they can wear us down, can't they? Apparently that had happened here. But good old Barney. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he comes along, he takes Saul. He'd, he'd, he'd seen what had been going on. He'd heard all the reports. And he brought him to the apostles, and he, he was a bridge builder. He declared to them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so as a result of Barnabas' ministry, Saul, verse 28 says, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. You see, Saul respected those who had personally walked with Jesus, those whom he had formerly persecuted. And Saul relied on a fellow Christ follower for help, Barnabas, who would become a great friend, and we know later in the book of Acts, a co-laborer with Saul in missions. Saul responded to God's call humbly. I, I mean, imagine it. Jesus blinded him on the road to Damascus, stopped him dead in his tracks. 
Can't you just see that now in the church in America, some of us? Wait till y'all hear what happened to me. You think you got a testimony. Let me tell you about my testimony, right? Saul could have got that attitude. I mean, I mean, he, I, I, I never talked to Jesus when he was on earth, but he, he stopped me. He, he, made a, he made a special appearance. He came back. And yet Saul instead has a humility both toward the leaders of the body of Christ and even, even uh, Barnabas. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't have to speak for himself. He lets Barnabas speak on his behalf. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, gives us more of the heart of Paul in this way when it says, for, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not about my experience with Jesus, it's about Jesus. You got that? Is your testimony more about you or about Jesus when you give it? It needs to be more about Jesus, amen? Nothing wrong with talking about what Jesus did for you. Paul would later in the book of Acts, right? But when, the, when, when, when he quit talking, Jesus was shining, not him. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't those words hold a different meaning when you remember Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion experience? I mean, he saw a light, so, so bright it blinded him. And then he goes on, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What's Paul saying? God takes the treasure of the gospel, the the treasure of the beauty of Jesus, and deposits it in jars of clay. People like me and you who are weak and common and everyday. And he uses us to show the beauty of Jesus. And he uses us to show that the power of the things that happen in our lives has nothing to do with us. It has to do with him. And he puts those jars of clay through all sorts of difficulty and suffering sometimes. Why? So that when we make it through those trials, it's clear there's a bigger power at work than the clay jar. The jar would collapse. The jar would shatter. And yet in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the beatings, it doesn't break. Why? Because the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of Jesus himself, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit indwells us. And in the end, we die a daily death, Paul says, but we do so so that you might live and you might see the beauty of Jesus in us. Paul was always uncompromisingly bold with the gospel, but he was always humble concerning himself, realizing that it was sovereign grace and sovereign grace alone that had saved him and was working in him to bring glory to Christ Jesus. As he would say in Ephesians 3, verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches 
of Christ. Can you hear the awe in Paul's voice as he writes those words? He cannot believe that God has chosen him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, any of the other apostles. But then he clarifies, he's not bragging on him. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Has God's grace been given to you in vain? So, Chad, how do I know? Are supernatural things happening through your life because you're allowing the grace of God to work in you things that you can't do on your own? That, that, could, that could be just being an intercessor prayer warrior. Praying like you would never pray on your own, but giving yourself to the grace of God at work in you, the Spirit of God, listening to His voice, responding to His voice, and praying like you've never prayed before. Maybe it's on the level of witnessing. Maybe it's on the level of giving. Maybe it's on, uh, some other, in some other way. You serving Jesus for his glory in ways that go beyond your ability. That's what Paul's saying here. I'm not worthy to be an apostle, but he made me one. He gave me grace, and, and I, I took his grace, and I went with it. I took the power and the ability that he gave me in the gospel and in his spirit, that resurrection power of Jesus from the dead that lives in me. I took it, and I used it. I got busy about getting the kingdom work done, about getting the gospel out. And you know, God went on to use Paul's immediate, intense, daring, humble obedience. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says, Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things Paul is is reflecting and he's just saying I've given it all I had, and, and, and the, result, the end result is God has worked. Thanks be to God. He leads us in triumphal procession. He makes us to be the aroma of Christ. And I can't believe it. I, I'm not sufficient for these things, but what God does through me and through us who follow him and give ourselves to his call, he spreads the smell of Jesus. And some smell that fragrance, and they're saved. Others smell it, and it smells like death to them. They, they reject it. But either way... They know it's Jesus that was in their nose. They know it's the fragrance of Christ that's come by, no matter how they respond. Our obedience to God's call should always be with this same grateful and humble attitude that Saul had. Well, the very last verse of our text, verse 31 again. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, remember what just happened. Saul had been in two different towns. His life had been threatened in both places. His friends and, and, and helpers had had to kind of just, you know, shuttle him on out of town, get him out of there before he died 
believing God had bigger things for him to do later on. Verse 31 is not what you expect to read after verse 30, right? Uh, and Luke, yet, yeah, just kind of says it matter of fact. So, after all that, two life-threatening experiences in the early life of Apostle Paul when he's obeying the call of God, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. I'm, I, that's not what you're expecting, is it? And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see, Jesus can get back on stage and do whatever he wants to in the drama of this life and in the life of his church any time he wants to. Never forget that. We're part of an ongoing living drama. And Jesus can do the unexpected when we least expect it. But what does it mean to walk in the fear of the Lord? It means to walk in obedience to Him at the most basic level, in faithfulness to Him, more specifically in, in bold witness for Him, in sacrificial love for others in His name, in compromise and uncompromising, uncompromising allegiance to Him, obeying God rather than men, with heavenly priorities because of Him, living by different standards and priorities in this world, looking different than those around us, making financial decisions and time management decisions based on different rules and, and priorities than the world around us, gospel priorities. And you see, when we choose to live that way, walking in the fear of the Lord, the Holy Spirit comforts and encourages us, and God multiplies His church. The problem is, we think we can somehow have the comfort of the Holy Spirit and see the church multiply without all of the trouble and self-denial and reprioritizing that is part of our walking in the fear of the Lord. But folks, it doesn't work that way. John Johnston said, Self-denial is the perennial challenge of humanity. A rampant selfishness is omnipresent in every generation and the church. The church is not immune to meism. Clergy and parishioner alike calculate every move to maximize personal benefit. Today, our bonfires of selfishness are fueled by the gasoline of affluence. And we stand around them and warm ourselves while the world goes to hell. While needs are unmet, even one another's needs. While those in our community who are hurting and, and, and suffering, their needs go unmet. While we warm our hands by the bonfires of our selfishness, fueled by the gasoline of affluence. It's a pretty good picture. But you see, if you're serious about the crazy call of God... You lay it all on the line. If you're serious about the call of God, you respond immediately, intensely, daringly, and humbly. You just, you lay it all on the line. It's all His. You say yes. You say yes now. You say yes fully. I wonder... Can we live and walk in the words of that great old Reformation hymn? We sang it last night at our Reformation celebration. The mighty fortress is our God. Listen to these words. 
And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, and one little word shall fail him. And that word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit, listen to this part, the Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And we're part of it. May we live in obedience to the craziness of God's call, knowing that no matter what it costs or what we lose here, our salvation and eternal safety is sure. Because King Jesus reigns forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel by which we've been saved. Thank you for the craziness of your call that leads us to an amazingly beautiful and joy-filled life even in the midst of suffering. Thank you, God, that you use the life of an obedient servant even in the middle of suffering for your glory. That's the craziness of your call. That's the craziness of how you work in our lives. But, oh God, instead of us looking at that and seeing just insanity, may we realize who you are. You're the God of the resurrection. And if you raise Jesus from the dead, then you can work in your wonderfully crazy ways in our lives and give us great joy and your name, Lord Jesus, great glory. May we respond to your call, even as Saul did. And may we do it today. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for his glory's sake. Amen. This altar is open for you to come as we continue to worship today. As we bring our service to an end in just a few minutes. And so you come, you respond to, to, to Christ. Today, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord Savior, stand with me. Don't leave here today without knowing him. You need to count the cost. Jesus said that. He calls you to come and die. Die to yourself. Die to your, your, your plans, your ambitions, your, your happiness, your satisfaction here. But come die that you might find life and, and find it more abundantly. More abundantly than you could ever plan or, or scheme or think about or plan. Won't you come to Jesus today even as we sing?